Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. OPEC had a meeting on Wednesday this week, so today we're talking production. Now, Jim, I understand that the OPEC meeting essentially resulted in needs for the non-compliers to do a better job with their cuts. You're seeing some issues with Terra Nova in Canada. Yeah, so there there was some production shaming going on. Uh, but in general, the OPEC countries and even the OPEC plus countries obeyed their production cuts fairly well. So to Canada. In December of 2019, the Canada, Newfoundland and Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board instructed Suncor to shut in Terra Nova production as they failed to meet requirements regarding redundant firewater pump systems on the FPSO. The suspension will continue until Suncor addresses the shortcomings. It's still offline. Terra Nova FPSO was expected to be offline six or seven months while it sailed to Spain for repairs and maintenance. COVID did affect that plan, and now the ship is sitting in Conception Bay uh, in Newfoundland awaiting orders. In November, Terra Nova was cut in more than half since the beginning of 2019 and was only producing about 25,000 barrels a day before it was shut in. But not to fear, the newer two of the 13 Hebron wells is close to making up the difference. Hebron has increased about 4,000 barrels a day to 138,000 barrels a day from January till now. While with Eastern Canada around 275,000 barrels a day, which is down from 300,000 barrels a day. Hibernia is down from 150,000 barrels a day in the beginning of the year to about 129,000 barrels a day now. All of Eastern Canada is starting to decline in production except Hebron, which is increasing in production. Going over to the other side, Western Canadian production is up slightly in July to 3.9 million barrels a day. This is down from the 4.6 million barrels a day we saw in February. So for all of Canada, it looks like this. In July, Western Canada produced 3.9 million barrels a day, with the eastern side of Canada at 262,000 barrels a day, for a total in July of 4.17 million barrels a day. This is expected to rise steadily throughout the balance of the year to about 4.474 million barrels a day, consisting of 286,000 barrels a day from the east and a little over 4.2 million barrels a day from the west. With that said, there's a very interesting dynamic going on with the heavy grades in Houston. In the last month, WCS Houston differential has fallen more negative, while the Maya grade differential has increased less negative. The net result is, where WCS used to trade 50 cents a barrel over Maya, it traded a dollar under Maya to start the week, but it surged to just about 20 cents under Maya. Still under, though. I'm sure one of our plugged-in listeners will tell me why. Speaking of Houston, uh, what else is going on in the U.S.? So there's three developments I want to take a look at uh, before I jump into U.S. production. The largest crude oil ETF, called the U.S. Oil Fund, received a Wells notice 
from the Security and Exchange Commission this week for its actions in the April 20th negative futures price fiasco. A Wells notice is a letter that a that notifies the recipient of the substance of the charges the SEC is going to bring against them. Yeah, gulp is right. Also, the finalization of the plan by President Trump to reopen the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, ANWR, for drilling. This has been controversial for decades. The controversy swirls between the porcupine caribou, the Inupiaq tribes, and the Gwich'in tribes. So let me put some reference around this. Anwar is not a city park that one strolls up to with a picnic basket and beach shoes. It's on the northern coast of Alaska and is, is the size of Ireland, more than 19, 19 million acres. The proposed area for drilling is called Area 1002. It's a coastal plain about the size of the U.S. state of Delaware, 1.5 million acres. Area 1002 is part of the calving area for the porcupine caribou. There are currently 220,000 caribou in this herd, roaming around 1.5 million acres. The Inupiaq tribes live in Area 1002 and in all directions from Area 1002 for about 400 miles. There are roughly 13,000 of them. They welcome the drilling as they expect it will bring prosperity to the frozen tundra. The Gwich'in tribes are the ones causing the controversy. 3,200 of the 4,300 of the Gwich'in tribe live in the Yukon Territory of Canada, with only about 1,100 living in the U.S. Their contention is the activities of the oil business will put the caribou at risk, and so a large, por- a large portion of their culture, food, and clothes. Inupiaq tribe and many Alaskan politicians on both sides of the aisle scoff at the assertion a few large banks make about not funding the oil activity because the Gwich'in tribe concerns. The Gwich'in tribe is separated from the drilling activity by 400 miles, 75 miles of which is a mountain range. 2,000 acres of Anwar's 19.3 million acres would be impacted by oil activity. That is 0.0001 of the total acreage, one ten thousandth of the total acreage. Also to note, when they are not dodging polar bears or scaring these large caribou, the U.S. military has installations and operations in the area. One of the reasons Anwar gets so much attention is it is expected to contain somewhere between 7 and 11 billion barrels of oil and another 4 billion barrels of liquids like condensate. These are technical proven reserves. All of the proven reserves in the U.S. is somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 billion barrels. So this one area alone is about 17% of all U.S. proven reserves. That's big. The last development is Brookshire Hathaway selling out of their Occidental Petroleum position. This is not a rebuke of the energy industry, rather a rebuke of that particular company. Brookshire Hathaway has 10 energy companies in their portfolio, and they're not going to get rid of those anytime soon or ever. So now to production. Alaska saw a resurgence in July as Hillcorp officially took over July 1st. 
they quickly added 30,000 barrels a day to put July production at 478,000 barrels a day. Along that same line, North Dakota is back over a million barrels a day at 1.18 million barrels a day. That's up about 300,000 barrels a day from the May numbers and definitely speaks to the producer's lack of fear from a a potential Dakota access pipeline shutdown. Heading straight south of Bakken to the Niobra shale play in Wyoming and Colorado. As predicted in episode five a couple months ago, this area is getting hit hard from the pandemic and the debt-funded expansion. The production is about 600,000 barrels a day, which is down about 35,000 barrels a day from March. The breakout of the play between Colorado and Wyoming is about three-fourths of the production being in Colorado and one-fourth being in Wyoming. Sliding east to Oklahoma and the Anadarko Basin, Oklahoma is seeing a bit of a resurgence as well in the last few months, adding 33,000 barrels a day since March to bring the total production to 396,000 barrels a day. So now we head to Texas with the Permian play and the Eagleford play. The Permian as a basin is producing 4.15 million barrels a day, and that's broken out as 3.25 million barrels a day in Texas and about 900,000 barrels a day from New Mexico. Now remember, New Mexico oil has to be discounted a little more than the Texas Permian oil as the header pipes, also called gathering pipes, are expensive, but the only way to get New Mexico's Permian oil to distribution points in Texas. Eagleford in South Texas is back over a million barrels a day at 1.1 million barrels a day. The last state I'll talk about doesn't get much love from the oil press. California is the seventh biggest state for production, and they are now up again over 400,000 barrels a day. For those who have known me for a while, they know I focus on grade differentials every day. Differentials tell the story of the physical market. Learning to interpret the differential moves between each of the grades gives us a clue as to what's happening in the market. Earlier I mentioned the differentials between WCS and Maya. Here's another differential to watch, ANS, Alaska North Slope. For its quality, it is one of, if not the cheapest grade in the Pacific. It's not hard to figure out what's going on here. Hillcorp is pricing this oil to move. And as noted above, the increase of 30,000 barrels a day in a month suggests the market is a very willing buyer. Interesting. So tell me about Pemex. On Monday, August 24th, Pemex will release its July production numbers, but I got a little taste beforehand. They will release a production number about 1.91 million barrels a day. That's up about 44,000 barrels a day from June. They will likely also suggest that August will be even slightly higher than July as the market starts to see the results of new wells coming online. In fact, Pemex expects to add 95,000 barrels a day through the end of the year. This is a result of the program of 22 new wells coming online. So I'm being asked about these production numbers as customers are having trouble reconciling these numbers with some other oil production numbers they're hearing. So let me try to clear this up. President Oberdor has a mission to get Pemex back to 2 million barrels a day of production. 
That includes his partners. He got pretty close in March. What he's talking about is total liquid hydrocarbon production. This does not include natural gas production. Total liquid hydrocarbon production is crude oil condensate and NGLs, natural gas liquids. Condensate and NGLs are relatively small volumes, about 263,000 barrels a day, and growing slowly. The crude oil production volumes for July are a touch over 1.64 million barrels a day. So that's 1642 plus 263 equals 1.905 million barrels a day. Here's how the 1.642 million barrel a day oil production breaks down. 1.5 million barrels a day is heavy, mostly Maya production. 441,000 barrels a day is light isthmus production. And 152,000 barrels a day of a 39 API extra light Omeka production. The reason I bring up these details is if President Oberdor wants to get back to 2 million barrels a day of production, he may not be able to get there with the current assets, hence the program to add 28 new wells. One thing to note, when the Zama oil production comes online, a new medium category may be added as Zama grade looks to be about a 28 API. Maya is a bit over 20, and Isthmus is a bit over 31 API. Finally, I want to mention the partnerships Pemex currently has with foreign companies. Pemex has partnerships with Australian-based BHP Billiton, Argentinian Tech Petrol, Egyptian Chiron, British Petrofac, German Dutch Airdol, American Chevron, Colombian Ecopatrol, Royal Dutch Shell, Australian Inpex, Spanish Sepsa, French Total, and Texan, yes, we think we are our own country, Texan Lewis Energy. Does anybody notice anyone missing there? No Chinese CNPC or CNUC. Hmm. So, Corey, where are we off to today in South America? Let me start off today with Venezuela. So, given the state of the country, I'm sure I don't need to tell you listeners out there just how difficult it is to nail down good data. Looking more recently in the country's glory days, in December 2018, Venezuelan crude production had fallen to 1.2 million barrels a day. Last week, I stated that I believe production to now be between 100 to 200,000 barrels a day, a number agreed upon by others in the market. But now I understand that Petabesa sees total Venezuelan crude production to be nearly 450,000 barrels a day. I just don't know about this. Crude inventories were at tank tops a month or two ago, and the country has struggled with exporting crude to the point of trying to use its tankers or tankers at controls to deliver oil. That's something I covered in last week's podcast. And running the, refinery, running the country's refineries has been no picnic. So on a side, uh, Pudabesa officials have stated that crude units at Amway and Cordon have been restarted, collectively running 135,000 barrels a day. Maybe, but when trying to boost El Polito's gasoline production to 30,000 barrels a day last weekend, officials said that it had to be shut down because of leaks. Check out the videos that have been posted on social media. I think there was more than gas leaks at the FCC, and that the reality is that a fire occurred that there had to be extinguished. Maybe not an explosion, but you can also see what looks like, perhaps, a tank fire at the, the tank fire at the facility as well. 
My point is, refining in the country has been challenging at best, and not surprisingly, information out of the country is questionable. When I talk of Venezuela, I often just mention PDVSA, but there are, or perhaps more awkwardly were, a number of joint ventures in the country. In the Orinoco, for example, there are 26 joint production ventures with PDVSA, but about half have shut in production, and the others are struggling to produce commercially viable volumes. As far as being an OPEC member, again, the volumes that the country produces are nil. Venezuela is exempt from the quotas, as are Iran and Libya, but this doesn't particularly matter. Venezuelan production is sustained for years under mismanagement and sanctions, but each day brings us closer to zero. And finally, to complicate matters worse, the trickles of crude oil movements between Venezuela and companies like ENI and Repsol may be coming to an end, as the U.S. is considering ending the exemptions that these trades have operated under. Implications for the oil market? Well, Venezuela's woes keep heavy crude off the market, but since exported volumes have recently and will continue to be so low, any further difficulty there, or even a slight recovery, won't do much to move prices any which way. Oh, boy. What about Venezuela's western neighbor? When it comes to Colombian crude oil production, Ecopatrol reigns supreme. Future plans for their country are to focus on the upstream, just like its Brazilian brethren, but recently the company has cut its CapEx budget through 2022 and has managed expectations downward that its production will not reach the planned 800,000 barrels per day, but will instead stay in the neighborhood of 700,000 barrels a day. The U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, is not the authority on international fundamentals, but it does issue a forecast for Colombian crude oil production. Sitting now at a total country production of 870,000 barrels per day, the EIA sees this remaining flat through end 2022. Crude oil exports so far in August have been healthy at 575,000 barrels per day, and 2020 crude exports to the nation have maintained a decent average of 540,000 barrels per day. That's lower than 2019, but still good in the face of global, global economic contraction. And to give you an idea of what's going out, so far in August, 46% of crude exports have been Caño Limón. This was certainly not the case for most of this year with repeated attacks on the Caño Limón Covina's pipeline. So we'll see if this particular grade maintains such a large share of exports. Basconia continues as Colombia's most notable export, representing over half of what leaves the country. So what else do you have for Latin America? Well, I could talk about Brazil, but Brazil has a tendency to dominate every South American conversation. But here's a short on the production side. Crude oil production was over 3 million barrels per day last month, pushed higher by record production in Buzios and increased production from the Santos Basin. China has bought crude from Brazil throughout the downturn, but increased economic activity in China served as a demand pool throughout the month. China has relaxed some crude buying, and Brazilian refineries have ramped up, the production activity in Brazil has pushed the country towards the production goals. For next year, the EIA forecasts crude and product products production combined to reach 4.2 million barrels a day. Argentina. Recall that the bulk of Argentina's production is refined locally, but that prior to COVID, there had been plans to significantly increase production in Vaca Muerta. Well, production has picked up on Vaca Muerta and exports from the region have increased. There's some details around local pricing and taxation that I've discussed before, but as of last month, 
Aranito Crude was fetching more relative to Brent than it had previously this year. I was speaking with someone in our Buenos Aires office earlier this week, and they stated that lockdown measures in the country were relaxing. So I'll keep a monitor on the situation there to see if refined products demand increase and ultimately puts a damper on Medanito exports. And finally, I haven't spoken about Ecuador in a while. Last time I did, the big issue were landslides in the country that damaged the Sote and another pipeline. This pipe is crucial for exports and has been repaired, though I understand it is still in danger of being damaged again from land erosion. Regardless, June saw Ecuadorian production reach over 500,000 barrels per day, which is up from mid-300,000 barrels per day in May. Ecuador exports the bulk of its crude, and what it earns from exports is largely used to pay down debts. This prime export is Oriente, which has been trading at about negative five to Brent. Uh, this is an improvement from May spreads that put the crude at minus nine and a half. Uh, so, Jim, closing thoughts. So, we're seeing a small resurgence in oil production in the Americas. This will correspond with countries bringing the refinery utilization back in line with demand. But don't get too excited about either one. No agency or analyst is predicting an explosion higher in oil production or refinery utilization. The next battlefield will involve refinery efficiency and the ability to move products around. So next week, Corey and I will talk about regulations, uh, laws, and restrictions that are impacting the oil industry. All right. Thanks, Jim. Have a great week, everyone.